0: If you're new with us this morning, welcome. My name's Chuck. I'm one of the pastors here, and we've been working our way through a book called Mark in the Scriptures. If you would, turn with me to Mark chapter 6. We'll be starting in verse 45 together in a few minutes. Mark 6, verse 45. And if you don't have a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, you should be able to find one. And in those blue Bibles, we're on page 491, 491. The most important things about Church on Mill are the same things that, that are true of every other Christian church, namely, that we, we're gathered because Christ is alive, and we open the Scriptures together on Sunday because we long to hear from God, and this is the way God speaks is through His Word. We're working our way through, through Mark this year because we want to get to know Jesus better, and this is a book about Him and His earthly ministry. We come this morning to yet another miracle in the book of Mark, and this one we're going to study this morning comes right on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000, which we studied together last week. Back-to-back miracles are unusual even for Jesus. As we consider the significance this morning of this miracle, namely Jesus walking on water, take special note of the way in which this story is linked to the previous one, because that will be our clue as to what we're to take away from this particular passage. And as we meet with God in the Scriptures together, and we uncover another miracle, remember that in the Gospels, miracles have a particular aim. Jesus didn't perform miracles to just win the applause of people. He didn't perform miracles as some kind of uh, holy magician, just wanting the oohs and ahs of the crowd. His goal wasn't to dazzle and entertain. No, he performed miracles for a very specific reason, namely to validate the message that he was preaching, the message of the gospel of the kingdom, and to demonstrate that He Himself was the Messiah. And so, the miracles have the effect of saying, here, let me demonstrate for you that what I'm saying is true. That's why the miracles occurred. So, I'd invite you to consider with me in particular, as we see Jesus walking on the water, a very bizarre thing. I would invite you to consider, what does this particular story teach us about Jesus? How does it validate His message as the validated messenger? That's what the miracles are for. To put that another way, all through Mark, from beginning to end, Mark is pressing us with one question, who is Jesus? And he's seeking to show us again and again and again who He is. And there's so much to Him that it can't be captured in one story. And so, like a diamond that you hold up and look at from different angles, and you see all its glory in all different ways. That's what Mark does with Jesus. He holds Jesus up that we might behold Him in all His glory. Miracles exist to help us answer the question, who is Jesus? And so, let's get started. Look with me if you would at verses 45 and 46, and I just warn you, this is a particularly dense message. There's a lot here, and I'm going to try to get as much of it as we can in that we might really see something wonderful about Jesus, starting in verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. While he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. At the conclusion of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus, we see in these verses, immediately made his disciples get into a boat and depart. Those of you with kids will know something of what this is like when you take your kids to the park. They don't want to leave. and It is very difficult to get them back into the car. That's how it was for Jesus trying to get the disciples into the boat. They didn't want to leave. And so, why would Jesus make them leave the scene where He had just fed 5,000 people from a mere five loaves of bread and two fish? Why would He want them to go so quickly and adamantly? Well, there's two answers. Number one The crowd of 5,000, as I mentioned last week, almost certainly had gathered because their desire was to force Jesus to become their king. They sought to press Him to not merely be healing people and preaching the gospel, but to assemble an army, head to Jerusalem, and overthrow Rome. But that's not why Jesus came. And so, Jesus had sought with the feeding to teach them who He was and say, that I didn't come to be your political ruler. And yet, the crowd almost certainly didn't get it. And we'll learn here in a few minutes that the disciples didn't get it. And so, Jesus wanted them to go because He didn't want to be forced to be made king. And He didn't want the crowd stirred up by anything the disciples themselves might say. So that's the first reason why he wanted them to go. The second reason is right there in the passage. It's that Jesus needed time alone in prayer. Jesus needed time alone in prayer. Verse 46 ends by telling us that as the disciples got into the boat, Jesus dismissed the crowd and then went up on the mountain to pray. Jesus' impulse to pray when things didn't go like they ought to go is instructive for us. While He no doubt prayed throughout the day, prayer would have filled every waking moment. But no doubt, even though He prayed throughout the day, there are times in the Gospels in which we see him depart by himself specifically to pray. I imagine the confusion of the large crowd and the confusion of the disciples, despite the fact that Jesus is showing them, I am the bread of life, as he's breaking the bread that doesn't run out. The fact that they were so small-minded that all they could see is we need victory from Rome when What God was offering through Christ is victory over sin and death. I imagine that drove him up on the mountain into conversation with the Father. Friend, when you are concerned, overwhelmed, troubled, things aren't going like they ought, is that your impulse? Is your impulse to go to prayer? Or is it to go to Netflix or to sleep, or to find some other unproductive distraction. If Jesus needed prayer in times like that, how much more do we? With all due respect, you and I are not as busy today as we think we are. We have the same amount of time as every other person who has ever lived. What we have is an overabundance of distractions, and those distractions cause us to feel like we are incessantly overwhelmed. If you are too busy to give a devoted attention to God in prayer, I want to encourage you to reassess the volume of commitments you have and the amount of toys that distract. Jesus was someone who could literally meet every need, every single person He met had. And yet, He found time to pull away to pray. If you struggle to pray, I want to encourage you to set a particular time and to take an alarm with you on your phone. To say, if, if you've got 15 minutes, then set that timer for 15 minutes and then set it aside so that you don't focus on how long has it been, how much time is it. And then to give yourself fully to prayer. Consider meeting up with another member or two if you just can't imagine praying for 15 or 30 or 60 minutes straight. It's often extremely helpful to pray with another person. The only way you'll develop an impulse to pray is by praying. And yes, it's very hard in the beginning. But I think this impulse that Jesus had is so helpful for us. Because we too will face those moments where things aren't going like they ought. And the best thing to do then is to pray. Now let's read on. Uh, Verse 47. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. The sea being talked about here is what's known in the Scriptures as the Sea of Galilee. It's a large lake in the northern part of Israel. That sea is some 33 miles in circumference. And while determining the exact amount of distance the disciples would have had to traverse is not possible, it must have been a long ways. They climbed in that boat, and probably when they climbed in the boat, the sea was calm. There was no storm. But as so often happened, a windstorm came in, and they had nothing but their oars to reluctantly keep them going the right direction. They began to paddle, and at first things seemed to go well, but then that storm blew in. Now, I realize we live in the land of death. (laughs) The only water around here is fake water, just (laughs) north of us. Uh, Those of you who are newer around here won't remember this, but a few years ago, I don't remember how long, sometime in the last 10 years, the bladder on the lake erupted, There's a visual for you. And all the water was gone, and all that was left was all the junk people throw in, Town Lake, and dead fish. And it smelled horrible, absolutely horrible. They actually took crocodiles from the zoo and put them in the lake to gobble up the dead fish. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? This really has absolutely nothing to do with the sermon. (laughs) The disciples are rowing on the water, and it's getting harder and harder and harder because as they rowed against the wind, their muscles got more and more fatigued. And like tires stuck in the mud they were just spinning out. They weren't getting anywhere. And this went on, not for minutes, but for hours. For hours, they rode exhaustedly, getting nowhere. In their last encounter with a storm on the sea, it was back in Mark chapter 4, Jesus had been with them. And so, when they reached their wits end, they went and woke Him up asking for help. But this time, Jesus wasn't there. And so, how would they react? Did they learn anything from that last encounter with a problem on the lake? How would they handle it? How would we have handled it if it was us? Well, the disciples kept right on rowing. Verse 48 describes how? It says that they were making headway painfully. Mark wrote this book in the common language of the day called Koine Greek, and the Greek word for painfully is actually the word often used for torture. After hours of rowing against the wind, the experience had become torturous. frankly, that kind of hardship, that kind of difficulty is not foreign to many of us. Many of us have had moments in which our minds, our emotions, our bodies, our dreams that we had about something in the future, our disappointment with the present had felt torturous, Maybe you're in that kind of experience right now, today. Notice that the disciples found themselves in this trial precisely because they obeyed Jesus. Does that mess up your perception of Jesus? They were content to remain on the land, enjoying the feast and calling, Jesus, be our king. Let's go overthrow Rome. They were fine to keep doing that. Life was good on the shore. But then Jesus forced them into the boat, knowing full well what was to come. There are versions of Christianity today that teach, if you obey God then you will always be led into greater ease, that when you're right with God, then your path will always be smooth. These kinds of churches assert that God's focus is to ever help you step into a new and better destiny. But that's not Christianity. That's a weak, pathetic substitute. Biblical Christianity teaches that trials are integral to growing up in Christ, that trials are normal, that if Jesus experienced suffering, we will experience suffering. Beloved, because God loves us and is absolutely committed to our good, from time to time He will send you into the storm. Your obedience will put you in a place of difficulty. Hardships are gifts because in hardships we learn lessons about God and ourselves we simply will not learn any other way. If you're paddling against the wind, don't give up on God. He has not forgotten you. He is not cruel. He is not indifferent. The presence of a trial does not equal the absence of God's love. He is not indifferent to your pain nor deaf to your cries for help. Your suffering is an invitation into sweeter, closer, more evident communion with God. It is sandpaper rubbing off the rough edges that you might see and know Him more. Like the disciples, I want to encourage you today, keep rowing, even if you're making headway only painfully. Pressing on in hardship when there's no visible progress is incredibly difficult. Charles Spurgeon, a British preacher, spoke on this passage. He put put it this way, the apostolic crew rowed and rowed and rowed, And it was no fault of theirs that they made no progress, for the wind was contrary unto them. The Christian man may make little or no headway, and yet it may be no fault of his, for the wind is contrary. Our good Lord will take the will for the deed and reckon our progress not by our apparent advance, but by the hearty intent with which we tug at the oars." There is, in verse 48, a little three-letter word that provides hope in hardship, the kind of hope that could keep us steady at the oars in the way that Charles Spurgeon describes. Do you see it? It's the word saw, saw. Jesus saw they were making Headway. Jesus saw. There's so much in that one little word. In the Old Testament, there's a rich tradition. We see it, I think, most clearly in the book of Exodus in which God's people are crying out for God to deliver them out of slavery. And the passage says that God saw. God saw their need God saw them in suffering. When the Bible uses that language, it's not merely telling us that God viewed His people. It's not merely saying He He noticed them. God doesn't have eyes, after all. This is language meant to help us capture something of the way God feels about His people and what He does for them. Three times in the early chapters of Exodus, readers are told that God saw the Israelites suffering under harsh slavery in Egypt. God sees leads to God acting. When God sees, God acts. Jesus seeing the disciples suffering on the boat emphasizes that their hardship filled His gaze. It captured his attention. It broke his heart. Brother, God sees your suffering. Sister, Jesus knows what you're going through. And he will act on your behalf at just the right moment. That's what he does. And he never makes a mistake about when he chooses to act he's always on time. Though you struggle against the wind and the waves, your struggle is not in vain. Because as you wait for him to act, know that your faith is being strengthened, your witness is being sharpened, your sin is being put to death, your self-reliance is waning, your love for God is growing, and your persistence despite hardship testifies to both fellow Christians in the world that Jesus is better. God sees. So keep rowing. Read on with me, would you? Second half of verse 48. About the fourth watch of the night, that's referring to 3 to 6 a.m. About the fourth watch of the night, He came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw Him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw Him and were terrified. Now, clearly here we've reached the miracle in the story, but notice that it's Jesus seeing that led to Jesus going. As He was up on the mountain in prayer, He turned around and looked out and saw them struggling, struggling, struggling. And so Jesus walked down that hill, and then He took His first step on top of the choppy water. It was one small step for Jesus, but one giant leap for the disciples' understanding of who He is. (laughs) Or it was supposed to be. As they rode and rode and rode, imagine this from the disciples' side of things. They are so exhausted they can hardly lift their arms. And then one of them out in the distance sees this blob heading towards them. Maybe he started singing, Casper the Friendly Ghost. But, but as this thing got closer and closer and closer, it terrified them. They had no clue the mysterious movement on the water was Jesus coming to their aid. His helpful presence seemed ghastly, and so they cried out in horror. It's not uncommon for God to come to our aid in ways that we would never, ever have expected. Not certainly what happened here. Look closely at the end of verse 48 and we'll find what is often the most confusing part of this passage. It says that Jesus meant to pass by them. Huh? What in the world does that mean? You'd think if He could walk on water, He wouldn't know where to go. Was Jesus merely out for a late night stroll? Had the disciples been struggling for hours? And Jesus was sort of frustrated with them that they couldn't get where they were supposed to go, and so He came out just to show them, one-up them, if you just did this, you could have gotten there. No, of course not. Church, whenever you come across something confusing in the Scriptures that seems really out of place, then the first thing to do is look around in the passage, and do we see an answer to why He would do that right here in the text? I don't think so. And so, whenever that happens, then don't run to Google. Instead, use the most basic rule of Bible interpretation which is, let the Bible interpret the Bible. And so what you can ask is, is is there any other place in the Bible where it says that God passed by or God intended to pass by? There are two very important passages where that happened. And I think we're supposed to read this event in light of those. I think they actually explained to us what's happening here. Why would Jesus have set out... This mic is driving me bonkers. (laughs) Why would Jesus have set out to get close enough to the disciples that they could see Him, He could see them, and yet then take a right... And leave in such a way that He merely passed by them, leaving them crying like this sweet little child. Why would Jesus do that? Well, there's two passages that answer the question. Let me show you one up on the screen behind me. This is the first one chronologically. In the book of Job, there's this back and forth dialogue between Job and his friends and then Job to those friends and Job to God. And the book is just a repetitive conversation. And at one point, uh, not Moses, Job (laughs) prays to God and says this, speaking of God, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion Pleiades and the chambers of the south who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. And this passage and several more, the Old Testament teaches consistently that God and God alone can trample the waves, that God controls the sea, in the Old Testament, the sea was thought to be a place of mystery, a place of judgment, a place of evil. The idea that you would go to the sea and get on a little board and try to ride it and it would spit you back on land and you would pay money to do that over and over and over is absolutely insane. For the Jews, the sea was not a place of calm and peace and presence. It was a place of worry. It was a place of concern. So, God trampling the waves of the sea is God demonstrating His vastly superior power. He created that sea, and He can walk on the sea. With that in his mind, Job prays, and says that God is passing by him, but that he doesn't understand what God's doing. He's confused. The disciples all these years later are living literally out of Job's experience, out of Job's prayer. Now, the second passage is long, and so we won't read it. It's Exodus 33, a beautiful passage. I encourage you to read it later today, but let me just summarize for you what happened. Moses is up on the mountain meeting with God. He's already been up there, and he came back down with the tablets. You may remember this story, and he found that in this brief period of time that he was gone, the Israelites had already made an idol, a golden calf. They melted down all the gold they had, built this golden calf, and were worshiping it. This was after God had just rescued them out of the land of Egypt, showing His tremendous power harnessed on their behalf. And in in, in just a very short amount of time, they've already gone back to worshiping false gods. Moses is angry. He slams down the Ten Commandments. They break. And then he goes back up on the mountain to meet with God again. And while he's up there, God tells him, I will send an angel with you as you go through the desert and then into the promised land, but I'm not going with you because you are a stiff-necked, hard-hearted, rebellious people. Moses then intercedes in one of the most beautiful prayers in the whole Bible. He intercedes and pleads with God, basically saying, God, if, if you don't go with us, All is lost. Do you think about God's presence as that precious? Moses essentially says, we'd rather stay right here in the desert forever than to go into a land where it will be easier if going into that land means you won't be with us. It's an amazing prayer. And then towards the end of that prayer, he prays, God, reveal your glory to us. Reveal your glory to me. Show yourself to me. In essence, as a, as a sign that you will be with your people. And then in this very famous moment, God puts him in the cleft of a rock. And then the text uses this language. God passed by him. How does that help us with Jesus walking on water? How does that help us with Jesus passing by? Well, it turns out that this is the key. By walking on water, Jesus sought to tell the disciples, I am no mere political ruler. Your sights are set on something far too small. I did not come to overthrow Rome. I am not merely a king over a little geopolitical spot. No, I am the God of the universe. And I am the God of whom it is said in the Old Testament, I appeared to you in the burning bush. I revealed myself to Moses on that mountain. I passed by Job. I am God himself. Just as passing by Moses was designed to comfort Moses and assure him of the presence of God on his behalf, Jesus passing by the disciples was designed to assure them that God was with them in the storm. Isn't that amazing? Church, the greatest promise in the Bible is the promise that God will be with us. If God has saved you, then you are and forever will be in the presence of God. In fact, because you've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ, even now the Holy Spirit lives within you, and you are, spiritually speaking, already seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Isaiah 41 puts it this way, fear not, I am with you, or be not dismayed. For I am your God, I will help you, I will strengthen you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand." So significant was this scene of Jesus rescuing, helping, aiding the disciples in the boat, that for the first several generations of Christians, all the early art by believers depicting the church depicts the church as a boat and it arises out of this passage. In fact, the center of a church building where the people sit is technically called a nave in English. That comes from the Latin word navis, which means ship. The people of God have pictured themselves as a boat in the midst of a stormy world in which Jesus comes to us walking on water to get us where we need to go in His very presence. The Lord intended to pass by the disciples, not to be a troll, but to comfort them, to reassure them God is with them. And yet, because they were afraid, He adjusted. Verse 50, the last half says, but immediately... He spoke to them and said, Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. In compassion, Jesus spoke to them. He cared for their needs by making even more clear what he was aiming to do by walking on water. Consider exactly what he said. He said, Take heart. That means to be of good cheer, to be courageous. Then don't be afraid, to stand strong, to keep rowing in the storm. And then he said, it is I. Now, that phrase, it is I, reads literally in Greek, I, I am. Now, the confusing thing here is, in Greek, you don't need a first-person personal pronoun because it's implied in the verb, but sometimes the author or the speaker, will put a personal pronoun there for for emphasis. It's like when we send a text to each other and you put it in all caps. The way this passage puts emphasis does it not once, but twice. There's two scoops of ice cream here. Because the passage says, I, I am, Jesus is saying, I want to emphasize something about me, namely, I am. Now, if you know your Old Testament, your brain has just exploded because this again takes us back to the book of Exodus. When Moses was at that burning bush and God was speaking to him saying, I will send you to deliver my people out of slavery in Egypt, Moses says, What am I supposed to say to Pharaoh? I don't even know your name. God responds, tell him, tell Pharaoh, I am sent you. It's the first place in Scripture the proper name Yahweh of God is used. Jesus picks up on that. He says to His disciples, take heart. I am is here. There could be no clearer way for Jesus to say, I am God, and God Himself has come to rescue you. Disciples, don't fear, it's me. I am the one who appeared to Moses in the wilderness, the one who guided the people through the desert. The one here now is none less than God Himself. Friends, when God is with His people, when God is on our side, we can always be courageous and never afraid. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? Look at how the paragraph ends, verse 51. He got in the boat with them, and the wind ceased. They were utterly astonished. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Jesus got in the boat and the wind stopped. That's a miracle in and of itself. But even then, Mark tells us the disciples didn't get it. Specifically, they didn't understand about the loaves. What is that talking about? Well, remember what I said in the beginning. Back-to-back miracles... And they're especially linked together. What we're being told here is that the disciples didn't yet see that Jesus is God in the flesh. That Jesus is the most unique person who has ever lived. Because simultaneously, He's the one who went up on the mountain not to talk to Himself, but to talk to God, the Father. And yet, He's the same one who would talk to God the Father and in the same exact passage come down the hill and then walk on water, which no human being in and of himself could do. He is a hundred percent God, a hundred percent man, together in one person. And he had to be to accomplish the reason for which he had come. The purpose of this whole passage is to say this: Jesus, God incarnate. Sees our struggles and comes to our aid. The disciples didn't understand because their hearts were hardened. Now, that doesn't mean they had coronary heart disease from eating too many fries. No, it's telling us. So important were their own expectations of what Jesus was to be that they missed the point of who Jesus actually is. Church, I encourage you today to be praying that we would in no way have blind, hard hearts. To be praying that you would not have a hard heart that all that Jesus would reveal to you about who He is, you would see and believe and respond to with obedience. And that whatever difficulty you may be oaring against, that you would take heart, that you would not be afraid, because I am is with you. Jesus is a singularly unique person. As man, He understands us. And as God, He is over us. He is the one through whom and only through whom if you turn from your sin and trust in Him, you will be saved. And then as one who is saved, you have God with you forever. May we keep rowing in trials. May we take heart because He is with us. Will you stand with me and let's pray. Father, we ask in Your great mercy that we would come to see Jesus more clearly as a result of what we've talked about in this passage. We pray that the waves of our troubles which seem large would be trampled on by You, such that we understand more clearly who Christ is, why He came. And that as Matthew says when he records this same passage, this same event, the passage ends by saying, and they marveled and worshipped. God, may that be our response today as your people, that we would marvel at who Christ is, and that as we take the Lord's Supper in just a moment and sing in worship, that we would thoroughly, completely be in awe of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.